Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. I want to say a huge thank you to my good friend Jason Lancaster and, and for coming out and leading us in worship this morning. Uh, Jason, yeah, you can, you can commend that as well. Uh, Jason is one of the worship leaders at our John Young campus. He's worshiped, uh, led on Sunday mornings. He's also led at our young adult ministry, at our Celebrate Recovery ministry, and uh, a good friend. You may want to keep him in prayer. It's been a tough year. He's an Atlanta Falcons fan, so if you can just, just remember him. At, Absolutely. He's the valley of the shadow of death right there, man. Well, uh, let me also just take a moment to celebrate uh, our first missions trip as a campus. That is so exciting. This summer we get to go. Um, There is a somewhat limited number of spots, although I'm hoping that the turnout is such that we say, you got to open up more spots for us. So uh, there's nothing to do on it right now, but I wanted you to have the date, June 27th to July 3rd, because I know a lot of you, you're already going, man, my my summer, I've got like two weeks open, like it's already booked, right? And so I want you to just kind of circle that. If you and your family can participate, we'd love to have you. Um, And we'll get more information on that and open registration in just a couple of weeks from now, Nikki and I got to go down to Puerto Rico in, uh, in November. That was my first time being on the island. And to see what God is doing in the midst of some turmoil, politically, economically, with hurricanes and now earthquakes. And, uh, and as you might suspect, God is up to something big when things happen like that, right? And God's doing some really cool things through church planters and churches on the island of Puerto Rico. So stay tuned there. I also want to celebrate an incredible group's launch party on Thursday night. And I want to give you just a quick report on that. Praise God, we have eight brand new groups starting with at least 85 people that we know took their first step to join a group. You can applaud. In fact, if you are one of those new group members or leaders, I would love for you to just stand where you're at. We want to applaud and celebrate with you. If you're a brand new group member or leader, they're all humble and embarrassed. Y'all give it up for these guys. This is awesome. This is awesome. You guys can be seated. This is a core part of the mission God has given us, to be a diverse community of good friends, together doing good works and sharing the good news of Jesus in our world. And one of the places that happens is in the context of groups that meet in homes around the community. We believe at Horizon West Church that when God moves, good happens. And God is on the move here at Horizon West Church. Well, with that, I want to introduce the, uh, the series that we're beginning today. Um, You will know as soon as I tell you the name of the series that I didn't come up with the title. The series we're entering is called Hashtag Blessed, okay? Anybody ever use that hashtag? I know that's kind of a thing, or maybe that was a thing. Uh, But the subtitle there, or the tagline there, is it's not what you think. It's not what you think. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to jump in here. Um, And you know what? As we do that, let me slow myself down long enough to pray. Can I do that? Oh God, we are such a grateful people. God, we're going to learn things in your word today and discover things that are life-giving. God, life-giving because we learn that it's not about us. It's not about our goodness, our performance, how diligent we are, uh, but that the whole story of the universe and human history is the story of a good, good God. 
And we are a grateful people because of your grace. And so, God, would you illuminate things in, our, in, in your word this morning? Would you help us to leave here with a greater vision of you and a greater sense of what you've called us to do in the world? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read for you, and you can read along with me if you've got a, a way to do that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I'm actually going to read uh, the entire passage that's going to be the passage that we're going to use the, for this series, and then we're going to hone in on just one of these verses. Matthew chapter 5. Beginning at verse 2, it says this, And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to hone in on one of these verses in a second, but before I get there, I want to just draw your attention to the fact that there's a word that continues to pop up in these verses. If you missed it, you weren't paying attention. It's the first word in nine of the verses. It's the word blessed, or in the Greek uh, original language of the text, the word makaria or makarios, nine times in those uh, verses, three through 11. And that word means rich or, or happy. Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you how to be happy. Uh, many people have referred to these, uh, this passage or these verses as the Beatitudes. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out why when I was growing up. What in the world does that mean? If you grew up around church and you've had the same question, I'm going to illuminate you this morning. The word was actually taken from a Latin word, beatitudo. Sounds like I, when I'm trying to make up Spanish, but that's actually what the word is. And we anglicized it to, to Beatitudes. But if you ever wondered about that, if you hear me use the term Beatitudes, it's a super churchy word, so I'm going to apologize up front, but it's probably going to show up a time or two as I speak. That's what I'm referring to. The Beatitudes are the blessed R's of Jesus in this passage. Well, one of the questions that's been debated around the Beatitudes or this passage is, is what Jesus is, is, what Jesus is saying in the passage descriptive or prescriptive? And here's what I mean. It could be that Jesus is saying, uh, you know, when you just find yourself in a situation uh, where you're poor or, or mourning or hungry, that's a happy place to be. He's just describing a reality. Or is what Jesus is saying prescriptive, meaning get poor, get hungry, uh, get merciful, because that's the path to happiness. My answer to this theological debate is simply that it doesn't matter. <laughs> If it's descriptive, guess what I'm automatically going to ask myself? Well, how do I get to be that? Right? Like, if this is the path to happiness, how do I become this? How do I become pure in heart? How do I become a peacemaker? It begs the question, how do I become? And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be an answer to that question. Blessed are you when these things are true of you. And let me show you what it looks like when those things are, in fact, true of you. Well, the context we know for the entire series in this passage is going to be first century Israel. And so we know that at this time in human history, the, Jew, the Jewish people 
are living under the conquest of Rome, as was most of the known world at the time. This reality shades the gospel narrative, but it is not the primary issue. It pops up here and there through the cracks. But interestingly, though that was the biggest and most significant fact in the world at the time, it's only a small fact in the gospels. A much bigger issue and reality is that among the Jews of the time, there were spiritual haves, Pharisees and other religious leaders, and there were spiritual have-nots, everybody else. And this reality is far and away the primary context in which Jesus steps into. I think there's a lesson here. Jesus was far less concerned about the political context of his day than he was the spiritual. Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. He didn't come to get his guy or his girl elected. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. And Jesus dealt with spiritual realities first and foremost. Well, I believe the Gospels, if you would look at the Gospels, the heart of the Gospels is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. In fact, if you're looking for a place to kind of restart your quiet time, your devotional time, a reading time, or maybe do it for the first time, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, first book of the New Testament, I would encourage you to start there. The heart of the Gospels, I believe, is that, the Sermon on the Mount. And if that's so, I believe the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is this passage we call the Beatitudes. And the heart of the Beatitudes, I believe, is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is going to become essentially Jesus' thesis statement for the rest of the sermon. So I want to read it again for you, and we're going to camp out here the rest of the morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I can promise you, when Jesus first uttered these words, this was a wait, what moment. You ever have one of those? You're talking to somebody, they say something, you say, wait, what? <laughs> like, you gotta, you gotta repeat that. Did you just say what I think you said? That this would have been uh, earth-shattering for the, for the people in the context in which Jesus first said it. Because no one in the history of the world has ever said, blessed are the bankrupt, or happy are the have-nots. And certainly a rabbi, a spiritual teacher, isn't going to say, and it's a really good thing when that's true of you spiritually. This, this caused a, an incredible amount of turmoil. This is disruptive to the people that Jesus is speaking to. But to understand this, you need to know Jesus' word there, poor, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's using a word that in the Greek is the word patokos. And there's different words for poor. Some of it means like, you don't have a lot. You, you need some help. You need, you need some assistance. That's not what this word is. This word means destitute. The, this is the word for those who are sitting outside of the temple or laying outside of the temple begging for alms. This was the really, really poor, what we might call extreme or abject poverty. That's the word that Jesus uses. It's not those who have just a little spiritual good to their credit. It's those who have nothing at all. I've shared the story, but it'll be new to some of you. When Nikki and I were first dating, I think it was our fifth or sixth date. It was sometime in that first uh, month or so. And we were going to go see a movie. So I go to the movie theater, and this is like circa 2008, so I was still like getting money out of the ATM or whatever. And so I go to slide in my card, and get $20 for movie tickets. You know where this is going, right? The thing came up, it said insufficient funds. 
So what do you do when you're on your fifth or sixth date? I might have lied. Okay, here's what happened. I said, hey, for some reason my car's not working. I don't know what's going on here. And she's like, oh, no big deal. I'll I'll cover it. So then we got married and I told her what happened later. But um, that that was... (laughs) Again, I'm not prescribing what... I'm just describing what happened in the situation. It, It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. It's like, man... You're telling me I don't have $20 in my bank account. That was true. Not saving, I mean, I had, I had nothing. I had literally, I was sleeping on a mattress in a church office. Like, I was destitute. Nikki has often said to me, man, love is blind. What was I thinking, right? Like, <laughs> Jesus said, when your spiritual bank account reads insufficient funds, you're on the cusp of discovering God's biggest and best blessings. So what are those blessings? I want to spend the remainder of my time looking at three blessings of spiritual poverty. And we're going to learn these blessings through the lives of three individuals, all who are going to be written about by Luke. And what's fascinating to me about that is Luke himself is a non-Jew, or what we call a Gentile. So in the first century in Israel, Luke himself was an outsider. He was one of the poor in spirit. He was one of the have nots. And he's going to give us three examples of what it looks like to be on the cusp of God's blessing. The first one is going to be through a tax collector. You can begin flipping over to Luke chapter 18. We'll have it on the screens as well. This we know is a, is a parable. A parable is a story that reveals a timeless truth that Jesus is going to share. And though it is a parable or a story, it's based on a true story. You need to know that in the first century Israel, Jewish tax collectors were the scum of the earth. Now, some might say tax collectors still are, But in the first century Israel, they really were, and here's why. Tax collectors in first century Israel were Jewish primarily, Jewish men and women who collected taxes for the Roman government, and oh, by the way, took a little off the top for themselves. So not only were they deceitful, and most of them thieves, they were also sellouts. They were guys who were working for the man, and the man was Rome, And so they were hated. They actually had their own category. In scripture, it's often referred to sinners and tax collectors, the worst of the worst. And yet Jesus is going to use a tax collector to reveal this truth. By the way, did you know that Jesus called a tax collector named Matthew to be one of his disciples? He also called a zealot named Simon. The zealots were the people who thought that their mission in life was to destroy Rome. They wielded swords. Most of them had incited riots or committed murder. Jesus said, hey, tax collector, who everybody says is a sellout to Rome, follow me. Zealot, who thinks that the kingdom is going to come through the sword by taking down Rome, follow me. When people followed Jesus, they came together, right? There's a lesson for us there. So let me read. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Here's the story that Jesus tells. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple courts to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, 
went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now when Jesus says two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, everybody is ready for the reveal. Let's hear how great the Pharisee is and how terrible the tax collector is. Jesus disrupted their notions. These two men are in the same place, yet their posture is different. They're making the same actions, yet their attitude is different. We know that the Pharisee, it says, is standing by himself. This could mean that he's distancing himself from the other temple goers because he's better than them in his eyes. That's quite possible, but I would just add to that that the word in the original language where it says uh, by himself or it gets translated by is the word pros, which means toward. So if that's the case, the man was praying toward himself or to himself. And this Pharisee's prayer was simply a recitation of all the great things that he had done and what a great person he was. It was an acknowledgement of spiritual richness. Jesus tells us later in the Sermon on the Mount that the Pharisees were, were uh, they, they loved to show off their spiritual riches. In Numbers chapter 15, the, the law commanded that Jews wear tassels on their garments and so the Pharisees made them like so long that they would drag in the dirt and they would walk through the city and everybody would go, wow, look how they follow even the little commandments to such a letter. Many of the Pharisees, went, when they would go to give in the temple courts, they would hire somebody to come and stand and blow trumpets so everybody would turn their attention and then they would give because man, these people were spiritually wealthy. In fact, when they fasted, remember the, the, the Pharisee says, I, I fast twice a week. So these guys were probably looked like me, you know, they didn't carry a lot of extra weight, but, they, and, but, every, but when they do it, you know what they did? They disfigure their faces. They put dirt in their hair. And they come to the temple, oh God, I love you so much, I'm not even eating. And people would just, man, this, these guys are incredible. All the things, all the spiritual wealth and riches, all the letter of the law that they keep. How different is the tax collector? Listen again tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner see the Pharisee distanced himself for one reason the tax collector distanced himself I believe for the opposite reason the tax collector is going I don't deserve to be among these spiritual people in the temple and I certainly don't deserve to stand before a holy and living God but God if you would be merciful I'm a sinner, I don't deserve it. But if you're good, if you're merciful, please remember me. Here's the first lesson we're going to learn this morning. Spiritual poverty positions us to recognize the holiness of God. It positions us to recognize the holiness of God. The more impressed you are with God, the less impressed you'll be with yourself. The opposite is true as well. When you start feeling really self-impressed, when you start, wow, look at all the things that I am doing and all the accomplishments and the accolades, guess what? Your view of God has shrunk. The tax collector, despite his sinful condition, saw God in such a holy way, a majestic, glorified way, that he saw himself so small and it had an impact on the way that he came to God that the Pharisee couldn't understand. And the result of this temple experiences that both men go away getting exactly what they came for. The Pharisee gets this. All the people, 
wow, look at him. He's so great. He's so spiritual. He's better than the best. Tax collector doesn't get applause. He gets what he came for, the mercy of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke is also going to show us these truths through a, a prostitute. I explained to you why a tax collector would have been a significant uh, illustration. I don't think I need to do the same here. You get it, right? Hasn't changed all the years. This is not somebody you would think Jesus is going to use as an example, and yet he does. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 7. Luke 7. It's a, it's a relatively long passage, verses 37 to 50, and this is not a parable. This is a, a true story, something that actually happened, so follow along with me. And actually, I think we're going to start at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who this is and what sort of woman she is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Jesus continues, verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, and when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Talk about disruptive. This sinful woman has the audacity to walk into a room full of religious leaders and even Jesus himself and demonstrate her love of God. You'll notice in the passage some similarities with the parable Jesus told. Both of these individuals, the tax collector and the prostitute, represent the lowest class of the lowest class of people in the first century Jewish context. Both are also nameless. We don't know them other than the, the term sinner. They literally are only known as sinners. And both stories involve religious leaders or Pharisees for the purpose of showing how not to be. Did you catch that? In both contexts, the parable and the real life situation, the Pharisees, the spiritually rich, those who are supposed to be the heroes of the story, end up to be the opposite. And there is a lot here, and that's for another day. What I want to do is just hone in on verse 47. What does Jesus mean when he says, he is forgiven little, loves little? It should beg the question, do you mean there are degrees of forgiveness? Some people have a small debt of sin paid. Others have a large debt of sin paid. Is that what Jesus is implying? Well, the whole point is no. I would say it to you like this. How many of you guys got Disney Plus now on your, on your TVs, right? Okay, yeah. I'm just curious. How many have cable? Man, it's a new day. All right, way to go, Disney. 
So how much is your Disney Plus? Is it like $7 a month or something? $80 a year? You're doing it the right way. All right. So, so if I say to you, look, I, I'm going to pay that $80 bill. You, you can have Disney Plus for a year. You don't, you don't owe that debt anymore. You'd be like, oh, that's cool, Chris. Thank you. That's a nice thing that you did. You're a good guy. That's what I would expect you to say anyway. <laughs> what if I said, hey, tell me your, your mortgage. Let me pay that for a year. I'm not doing that, by the way, nor could I. But <laughs> it's, it's different, right? It's different. Jesus' point is not that there are different degrees of forgiveness. Jesus' point is there are different degrees of recognition of how much God has done. And the Pharisee's going, gee, Jesus, thanks for paying my Disney Plus account. And the sinful woman's going, Jesus, you paid everything. I had nothing to bring. You didn't just fill the gap you are the gap. You did it all. And because of that, it elicited something in her heart. The second lesson and the second blessing. Spiritual poverty positions us to experience the love of Jesus. So first to recognize the holiness of God and then to experience the love of Jesus. This term alabaster flask, we don't use these kind of words anymore. But what it is is basically a box or a jar of perfume. Now remember what this woman does for a living. Do you think that an expensive jar of perfume might be helpful for her as a prostitute? In fact, a similar thing happens in John chapter 12, and we learn that the cost of such an item was nearly a year's worth of salary. And she cracks it and pours it out on the feet of Jesus because extravagant grace demands extravagant love. See, the Pharisee didn't experience it. He thought Jesus gave him a pat on the back and he'd give one back. The woman knew that Jesus had done for her what she in no way could have done for herself. The woman learned, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last example Luke is going to give us actually doesn't come from the gospel of Luke, but rather it comes from the life of a man named Paul. Uh, previous examples, uh, we see the negative example of the Pharisees, but in this example we're actually going to see Paul be someone as a Pharisee who experiences a renewal of heart that puts him in the category of the poor in spirit. And Luke writes a lot about that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, we learn Paul's story. He's on his way to persecute Christians. He's on his way to do what he believes is the duty of God because again, he's the spiritual in class and he's a radical transformation and learns that he is not who he thought he was. And Paul writes about that in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and this is what it says. This is Paul's account of his own life. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. I'm going to start kind of in the middle of the verse here. Paul says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Pause, time out. Isn't Paul doing what the tax collector in the temple did? Look at my good deeds. I was the best of the best. I, I'm the one. I, I have all the spiritual credit in the world. And then Paul gives us the ultimate juke. Because what becomes his pile of good deeds, he's about to just push over onto the ground and watch it shatter. L listen, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count all of it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. As Paul builds this tower of his accolades and accomplishments, what he's going to do is not demonstrate his self-sufficiency, but demonstrate his Christ-sufficiency. He comes to the opposite conclusion as the Pharisee in the temple. What Paul is going to say is, listen, use me as an example. Because if there was a way to have enough spiritually, to be good enough for God, to attain it on my own, I'm the example. And Paul's going to say, but I learned I was bankrupt. I learned that I had nothing. I learned that it was all of Christ. The word that he uses there, rubbish, that the word actually means the, the total loss of property. Paul's like, I'm filing an insurance claim because I can't redeem any of this. This is all lost. This is all damaged. This is all wasted. This doesn't get me anywhere. I'm putting this at the feet of Jesus that I may gain Christ and be found in him having a righteousness that is not my own from the law, but that which comes by faith. Paul crossed the line in the sand and identified with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those who were the poor in spirit, and he gained the kingdom of heaven. Third lesson, last lesson this morning. Spiritual poverty prepares us for our kingdom mission. Paul had recognized the holiness of God when on that road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The light from heaven, the sound, who could it be but God in his holiness? And then Paul began to experience the love of Christ, which, by the way, is primarily demonstrated, I believe, through the people of God. Remember Ananias, who took this Christian hater and killer and said, Brother Saul, receive the Holy Spirit. A man named Barnabas who said, guys, this man loves Jesus. He's one of us. Let him in the door. Paul experienced the love of God for himself in large part through other people. And then he devoted the balance of his life to mission. And because he identified among the poor in spirit, Paul felt like there wasn't enough that he could ever do to repay that debt. Listen to 1 Timothy 1.16. This is the words of Paul. He says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul not only crossed the line to count himself among the poor in spirit, he said, guess what? I'm actually the worst of the worst. I'm beyond bankrupt. I'm beyond destitute. My cupboards are bare, my pockets are empty. That's what Max Lucado uses. That's the phrase he uses. I've got nothing to bring. I am simply, as Martin Luther said, a beggar showing others where to find bread. Paul, the great, rich performer of God and for God, becoming the poor in spirit. Because if the grace of God could reach Paul, then there was no one too far. See, I love that illustration because a lot of us, maybe we can't relate as well. Some of us can. 
But many of us can't relate as well with, with the tax collector, the prostitute. We go, man, but I know what it looks like to think that my pockets are filled. I, I know what it's like to think my spiritual bank account is full. And the lesson I need to learn is that that gets me nowhere with God. It is all of grace accessed by faith. That's the lesson. Even a Pharisee can learn it by the goodness of God. Paul devoted the rest of his life to mission. Traveled all over the world. He planted churches. He discipled people. He ended up back in Rome, the, the, the capital of the empire, the place where it was all happening, not to establish an earthly kingdom, but to die a gruesome death. We know that Paul's head was chopped off under Nero. He gave his life for the mission because he said, God, you've done so much for me, a sinner. I must do something for you. And friends, this is why we do things like go to Puerto Rico on mission trips. This is why we rally people into groups. This is why we proclaim the gospel on Sunday mornings. This is why we have a board with thumbtacks on it that represent spiritual and gospel conversations we're having with neighbors and classmates and coworkers and friends and family members. We want to show others where they can find bread. We have nothing of our own, but God has been so good to us. Well, I don't know, friends, this morning that there is a better way to demonstrate our need of Christ and his sufficiency than through baptism. Uh, this morning, we have three individuals who have identified their need to be baptized, and they're getting ready, and in just a moment, they're going to come out. But I thought it was appropriate, given the context of the message that we're sharing today, I know that some of you have been wrestling with this question. Man, sh should I be baptized? Maybe you were, you were sprinkled or baptized when you were a child, and maybe you do or don't remember that, but, but I'm just going to tell you that the response of people in the New Testament, when they came to know Jesus, they were like, What's next? And the answer is, be baptized. Be baptized. Not because baptism saves you, not because getting dunked in water saves you, but it demonstrates that salvation has taken place in your heart. And we have three individuals coming to say, that's true of me, and I'm ready to show it. And I wonder if there may be others this morning. So in just a second, I've asked Miss Barbara Pennington to come down. She's going to receive you. If you want to be baptized this morning, we've got to change the clothes. We've got all the stuff. You can come. We've got some folks around the back that she'll take you to. They can talk with you. If you've got questions, you go, man, I want to be baptized, but I want to make sure I understand. We would love to talk you through that process, pray with you, help you get ready. And then we'd love to baptize you this morning along with those who have already come to identify their need. And so, Miss Barbara, I'm going to ask that you stay right there as people come. Team, why don't you lead us in worship? I'm going to go get changed. If you need to be baptized, if you need to demonstrate your spiritual need of Christ this morning, this is your opportunity just a moment, but I want to share even more to the story. Uh, Debbie, about two or maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago at this point, had texted a few of us, myself and Carmen, I think we're on that text, and she said, hey, be praying for my dad. He's, uh, he's in the hospital, uh, 87 years old, so we're praying. A couple days later, we get a text. She says, hey, good news. My dad is home. Better news. He gave his life to Jesus this morning. Amen. And we're, we're going to have the privilege, Lord willing, we're going to have the privilege of baptizing him in the next few weeks, uh, whether here or maybe on video, just depending on how we can do that. But this is what happens. Debbie and her husband, Lou, they've been planting seeds, sharing the gospel, pulling thumbtacks off the wall. And when the time was right, he said, I have some questions. Amen. So Debbie, based on what you've said, I'm going to ask that you make your profession of faith. Just tell us your name and Jesus is my Lord. And I'd love to be the one to baptize you this morning. My name is Debbie, and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Amen. And Debbie, based on that profession, it's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ is enough for 
This is Lula Eck. Her parents, Tim and Becky, are back here as well. Been part of the church for uh, quite a while at this point. And Lula's seven years old. Becky reached out and said, hey, our daughter is ready to be baptized. And so I had the chance to meet with Lula and also with her parents and identify the two things we look for, whether it's a young child or an older adult, anywhere in between. Does this person understand the, the gospel, that Jesus died in their place and was raised to life on the third day for them? And do they demonstrate a heart that's been changed? And, and even at a young age, we saw that that was the case with, with Lula. And so, Lula, why don't you go ahead and make your confession? My name is Lula, and God is my Savior. Amen. Amen. Based on that confession of faith and simple childlike faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This one is mine. This is Olivia. Um, Olivia is six years old. Olivia has been asking for the better part of two or three years. Um, and like Lula, Olivia has demonstrated both the understanding of the gospel and also a heart that loves Jesus, loves to worship, loves to invite her friends to church. Um, and she wanted to publicly demonstrate. In fact, we kind of tried to discourage it. And she said, why are you guys stopping me? And we believe that Jesus said, let the little children come. And so Livy. Based on that, we're excited to baptize you. Go ahead and state your name and make your confession. My name is Olivia, and Jesus is my Lord. Right. Olivia, it's an honor as your dad and as your pastor to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's go out and be God's hands and feet. Let's share the good news of Jesus. Let's remind people that the kingdom of heaven is for all who come. We love you. Go in peace. We'll see you next week. I have decided to follow Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.